It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. And good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome to all. I'm glad everybody uh, is with us uh, on a chilly start to a Sunday. But guess what? We're going to be getting some warmer weather here. I kind of like that. I'm I'm, I'm 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 okay with that. Let me just say it's 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 all right. Here we go. Lurching. Uh, oh, I better not use that word because I'll get. We'll we'll have our. Uh, our differences about how to use the word lurch. Uh, but uh-huh. I lurch into spring. I lurch into all weeks and all months. And I dance into spring. Well, that's good. Dancing's good too. I jump up and down and I was talking happy this coming. Uh, speaking of dancing, I was talking to one of our guests the other day, uh, who who's on the show today, um, about dancing. And that was our Amalankier in the backyard, uh, service berry <laughs> that once it blooms, it dances. It dances in the wind. Um, Kathleen and I really, it's a, it's a very short oh. time of year, a couple of weeks every year mm-hmm. where the Amalankier just kind of dances in the wind. Um, uh, but it's, it's something to, no, it's not interpretive dancing. It's more like, well, that's the squirrel bouncing up and down on the branches. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, the squirrel was hanging upside down this morning trying to get into the suet feeder, but the birds had finished off the suet yesterday. So the poor yeah. squirrel's hanging upside down for no particular oh. reason at all. Well, you know what? I'm going to put some out there later, and then the squirrel, all the squirrels well, are going to be have. very happy. I, <laughs> you know. It's always it, it's a, it's it's always the 10,000 sparrows. And, oh, you know what? I meant to send you. I got something. Oh, Oh, you you did send it, but I was going to say, speaking of, speaking of squirrels, spring is here. Chipmunks, they're out. Oh, you've got chipmunks. Okay. Chipmunks are out. (laughs) You're right. I I did send it to you because I got from Mm -hmm. Cornell uh, Bird Academy um, how to (laughs) ID sparrows. And and even they admit, Mm -hmm. they say it's really tough. That there's a lot of them. There's a lot of yeah. them, and they, and they all look Birdie the same. The, the Merlin app. Yeah. What about the Merlin app? With the Sparrow ID. Oh, well, no. <laughs> well, yeah. This was the uh, – is is it uh, – well, this was an email I, I, I received from them. Yeah. So. yeah. But it's uh, they have a course. Um, 
mm-hmm. on identifying 49 sparrow species from across the United States and Canada. The course includes keys to ID and a video portrait for each species, immersive lessons from our world-class instructor, fun quizzes that measure your skills and progress, plenty of practice opportunities with the Snap ID tool, which I have one of those. On. And by the way, I upgraded both my cell phone and my computer this week. Wow, that was intense. Um <laughs> You know, and I had Actually, to. You I, had a double date because you survived it. I survived and, it, and they're both. And we're on the air this morning, and they're both kind of working, which is just a uh, well. The, the computer and we're for, on the air. Well, <laughs> no, the computer for the show stayed the same, but it was my work computer that uh, everything I do on is the one I I keep the computer for the show kind of stripped down. It's like okay, focuses on the show. Boom! I don't want to put anything else on it. Um, but yeah, um, and I had to do the phone because uh, I woke up the other yesterday. I I had to do this. I had to get a new phone yesterday because I woke up and I had knocked the lamp over in the night, did not wake up the lamp by the bed had knocked it over onto the phone. And the phone was like, and flickering and I went, Oh no, but I had ordered, I had ordered a new phone already. Cause I knew I was going to be replacing that one. And so I thought, Oh, I've just got to get through this. I've just got to be able to transfer the stuff onto the new phone before it just goes and explodes. And it did. And I did, I managed to do it. I was, I don't yeah, know how, so there we go. I'll yeah. give myself. When a- I talked to you yesterday, I'm like, do you have a new phone? So what's different about your phone? So there we go. Uh, so yep. it was a technological Saturday, and here we are Ooh. on Show Sunday. Let's talk about our wonderful guest. Yes. And, and before that, I do want to thank all of our listeners that are with us this morning. As one of them just pointed out, it's early. Thank you all for getting up an hour early. As oh, that's we- right. Whoa. Yeah, we all lost an hour last night. Uh, oh, and we could get into the whole uh, daylight saving time. And there's no S on it, daylight saving time. Um, and it, and, and the worth of it. And now there are proposals to have it permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we talk about that last week? Um, uh, uh, maybe... and last year and the year before and the yeah, year before. Yeah. But some States are on it permanently now, which is mm-hmm. a dumb idea because, uh, some scientists think that messing with, uh, our, uh, circadian rhythms might not be a really good idea. So, um, you know, the fact that we have to change over twice a year is crazy. I say just leave it. Standard leave time. Leave it at daylight savings time. Finally. No, leave it at standard time because that's... No, it's not too early. Well, it's going to mess with people. I'm telling you, it's going to mess with people. So, but I'm going to lose that battle anyway. On to our guests. <laughs> uh, yes, on to our wonderful guests because we're talking not about saving time, but we're talking about phenology. Some people call it phenology. Um and you're going to learn what that is if you don't know what that is with a couple of our great guests um, at 930. Um, and then uh, after that, Peggy and I are going to do our usual mishmash roundup. We Okay, this is a something for, I, I, and I keep saying this to our, um, our, our viewers and listeners, you got to help us out, come up with a segment title for that because uh you know you're just sitting there watching this you get all this for free you gotta you gotta earn your keep here so give us and peggy discuss cool stuff is what we have written down and that's basically yeah that's it 
cool environmental stuff usually, but sometimes it's gardening stuff and sometimes it's just uh, science stuff, you know, like when we talk about Pluto. We need a segment title for that. So if you can help us out, that'd be fantastic. But we're doing that today. Prize for you. We don't know what. Uh, Fabulous fabulous. Wally prizes, right. Um, And uh, and of course, meteorologist Rick DeMaio is here. Uh, with the usual and, uh, you know, signs of spring. There's a, there's a rumor that there'll be some spring here uh, in the Midwest in the coming days. So that's all coming up. But we start our program with a friend uh, who's looking a little dark right now. Uh, I'll bring you in. And, and it's kind of where you go in and out of the light there, Petra Page Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, she is with Fruition Seed. She's been on the show before. You know, it's spring. Uh, folks are starting to get their their seed stuff together, so it's important for us to bring in as many people as possible to encourage them and to tell them about wonderful varieties that are out there. How are you doing this morning, Petra? Oh, I'm glorious. So many <laughs> signs of spring, even as the snow falls. <laughs> yeah, if you... if. If you can, you can't see out her window right now because it's very bright. But we were looking earlier. You got a bunch of snow last night, didn't you? It's glorious. <laughs> <laughs> and you like that stuff. I mean, there's some people who don't like snow. <laughs> uh, of course, if, if you don't like Send it, it, it I don't. To me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like snow. I don't do much in it, but I, I like it. Um, <laughs> I think it. I, I love the seasons. What's that? As long as I'm not driving in it. Yeah. Well, even then, it's a challenge. You know, it's 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 exciting uh, as long as you're not skidding off the road, as we saw in those videos a few weeks ago. That <laughs> when we were talking to Rick. <laughs> but uh, Petra, tell us um, a little bit about Fruition Seeds. You're up in the Finger Lakes area of New York State. Um, tell us just uh, uh, quickly about uh, your mission and the kinds of work you do. Well, when people ask if we have children, we say yes, and great, great, great grandchildren, and you can eat them. <laughs> if oh we dear! Think they have a sense of humor, which is one of the things I love about you, Mike and Peggy. <laughs> and yeah, we grow seeds, hundreds of varieties of organic well adapted for short seasons seeds because I grew up here in western New York in zone 5 thinking that I couldn't grow watermelons and turns out I can I just need the right seeds Uh so it's a joy to be sharing all of these seeds and apple trees as well that are really brilliantly adapted to surround us all with beauty and abundance and you know seeds don't necessarily I mean they do grow themselves and they grow us more than we grow them and it doesn't necessarily, it's not easy to grow the biggest, most gorgeous garden that you've ever seen. And so we love sharing not only the seeds, but the resources, inspiration that people need to be surrounded by abundance as well. So whether it's online courses, webinars, all kinds of content, just sharing what we love and what we're constantly learning. You know, I think we talked um one of the times you were here about watermelons uh, did peggy mm-hmm. didn't didn't we do that about uh, about growing watermelon and short season watermelon yeah. uh, and and but it leads me to a question mm-hmm. about chicago because we're zone 5 we're not quite as far north as you are um and um uh but i 
are we short season here too? Uh, are we in the same ballpark as, as uh, oh, you totally. are? Oh, totally. I'm in zone five. You're in zone five. Yep. Really, there's this we, ring we have around a big lake. the globe. We have a lake. <laughs> yeah. No, but We're about yeah, that, 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 that affects us is what I mean. Yeah, totally. I mean, honestly, we have friends in Alaska and Florida that are growing our seeds and love them. <laughs> so the regional adaptation is much broaderly, more broad um, adapted than just, you know, our immediate area. Certainly, yeah. you know, the closer you get to us, the more regionally adapted they are. But, you know, most seed companies are distributors and not actually growing seed. The vast majority of seed is grown in the Central Valley of California, where it's arid, and also the central, the very arid portions of China and the Middle East. So unless you're living in the Central Valley of California, um, none of the seeds that you're getting are regionally yeah. adapted. Anyway, you, you know, I, Petra, how, how, how would somebody know looking at a? I'm sorry, Mike. Um, no, no, you go ahead. How would somebody know looking at a seed packet if it's going to do well in a shorter growing season? What are they? What are they? You looking wouldn't. For? You wouldn't generally. Okay. It looks like looking into the companies more often, more deeply. So looking at, and most seed companies aren't going to tell you this kind of information because, I mean, it's just not sexy to say we don't grow our own seeds. We're just distributors. We're middlemen. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, being in relationship, picking up the phone, asking deeper questions. Where are these seeds grown? Where are they coming from? What are they being selected for? Um, which is a whole other delicious wormhole of, I mean, just, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> Pick your wormhole. It's the 21st century. Um, but yeah. it's really nice. And Fruition is not alone. There's a couple dozen other very small seed companies across the continent that are committed to growing and sharing seeds well adapted for their bioregions. Okay. How many, uh, or, or give us an idea of how many seeds you're growing yourself. And, and, and I was interested to see on your website that you actually sell uh, distribute uh, a couple of F1 hybrids. Uh, mention that as well. Uh, but how how much of this do you are you able to grow yourself? We grow sixty percent of our seeds on our farm, and the balance are coming from other farms in the Northeast that are also certified organic and focused on growing seeds. So it's a really so they're all well adapted for our short seasons, and we grow sixty percent of them on our farm. We have twenty acres here in the Finger Lakes, and yeah, all of them are open pollinated and what you would consider heirloom on the glorious spectrum, with those except two exceptions that you mentioned, Mike, we have two tomatoes that we actually are creating the hybrid ourselves. And the reason is this, we're creating an open pollinated heirloom variety out of them, but we've crossed brandy wine with a Cornell line that has all of the disease resistance that you need to actually grow tomatoes with a lot greater, a lot more ease, less disease pressure. And so we cross those. It's the best of both worlds. It's the hybrid because we can share that to you immediately. And it takes the better part of a decade to create a new variety, especially one that's consistently disease resistant like that. So we're in the process of creating the open pollinated version. And yeah, who knew there's so much in a seed? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you've got a lot of tomato varieties and, and uh, a couple of the dwarfs too, like the Arctic Rose. Oh my gosh, they're so delicious. And they're so, I mean, just 
two and a half feet tall and covered in fruit and they just keep blossoming indeterminately, even though they're profoundly determinate. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we we have Craig Lahoulier uh, on on the show uh, usually a couple of times a year and uh, we talk about the dwarf varieties with him but um i'm also a fan you know and and this is interesting because uh there are people who say the only uh crops you should grow are open high uh, open uh, pollinated and and um you're saying well you know what we can we can breed these so that you're going to have uh, fewer pests and 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 it'll be a little bit easier for you and i have to admit oh. i love the tomatoes that come out of uh dr harry clee's uh, lab in florida the uh, the garden gem and the um, uh, what's the garden other treasure. garden treasure and, and, treasure, the other... and then there's the ruby the, which the I hate ones. the name I hate the name I just call it W hybrid now because that's what it <laughs> originally was the W hybrid that's that's how how we know it here but we love those tomatoes because they're the plants are prolific and uh, they I have not encountered uh, any pests problems with them and i want tomatoes and they taste great by the way too and they're firm you know and that's that's what you want in a tomato um so uh i would like to speak for a moment that not all f1 hybrids are created equally okay. and distributed equally and so i've actually been very much like not encouraging people to support and purchase F1 hybrids for my entire life. And the vast majority, like there's nothing that inherently genetically makes an F1 hybrid superior to an open pollinated variety. There's so much more to say in that, but I've talked to countless plant breeders who all agree. The thing is, if you want that disease resistance, it's more strong mm -hmm. in the homozygous state in the F1 state, but most F1 hybrids are patented. GMOs get all the bad rap for patenting life as well they should. But little known, you can actually patent not a GMO. You can patent a hybrid. You can also patent an open pollinated variety. So sure. it's a generalization, but the vast majority of produce other food that you would find in a grocery store is coming from a patented plant and there are three companies that own over 60 percent of the seeds distributed on the planet and that's just consolidated it was five five years ago and it's already the consolidation is continuing wow. to yes. happen and so most of the time when you purchase an f1 seed you are supporting that and so it was actually a really big <laughs> philosophical spiritual <laughs> exercise for and learning for me to be like wow you actually there's nothing there's nothing inherently oppressive about an f1 hybrid it's just in our current system they're very easily exploited and support these systems of oppression in this way so i don't i this is why you'll find so many caveats on our website we're like yeah, yeah. we share these two hybrids i'm so sorry and it's not what it looks like and here's a little more information <laughs> because there's more to the story and you're welcome and don't be scared uh, yeah. <laughs> no that makes a lot of sense um the uh, nuance is a good thing and sometimes 
you know, we, we live in a world uh, of nuance and, and we have to make choices in our lives. Um, and the fact that you explain this is a good thing. And, and I happen to agree with you that putting the uh, seed stock in the hands of three companies, soon to be two, soon to be one, uh, that controls everything in the world is, is not a good model. This is not a good model for humanity. So uh, I happen to agree with you about that. <laughs> Um, and I agree with you about that, you know, in terms of other things like Amazon uh, controlling everything in the universe. That's not healthy. It's not healthy for our planet. Uh, One of our listeners asking, who are the three companies? Yeah, um, I can't remember the the one. It's Chem, China and Bayer. Um, and I can't remember the third, but they just bought DuPont, <laughs> like mm. they're big chemical companies that yeah. own not just seed, but then all kinds of other, they have very yeah, diverse behind- portfolios, you could say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh. diversity is important, but, uh, <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I, I got to mention, um, and Peggy, uh, talked about the chat, uh, Skeet says, hello. I, I didn't tell oh. you Skeet that, uh, Petra was going to be on the show and, your uh, your your money your check will be in the mail uh, very very soon, Skeet. <laughs> um, you know, go, going back to because we don't have that much time with Petra. Um, going back to you know we we always talk a lot about vegetables and you have fruit trees now too. But you know you're bringing up beauty in the garden and mm-hmm. flowers are edible as well. You guys have a ton of flowers. How do you adapt flowers to be short season? Oh, the same, the same strategy as anything else. What thrives, what survives, mm-hmm. <laughs> but what thrives? And especially in the case of flowers, you want the flowers that'll be flowering earliest. You know, there are plenty of dahlias that will blossom abundantly in zone five once it's September, <laughs> but we're wanting to select the flowers that yeah. are blossoming abundantly in early July or even earlier. Mm -hmm. So it's that who's blossoming earliest is a huge portion of it. And then just who else otherwise is thriving, whether it's disease resistance, other kinds of factors, but that early blossoming is crucial. Uh, I'll ask you about that. What, uh, are there any plants? uh, You must try a lot of different things. And sometimes you go, whoop, that didn't work. Um, Did you have- uh, All the time. I'll bet. So what's the latest one that where you said, Oh man, I really wanted that to work and it didn't, and it didn't happen. Oh, we're still in process. Um, but I'm really into passion flower. It's just a beautiful plant, an exquisite flower and incredible medicine. And so we're growing passion flower in some of our high tunnels. Um, and it's just passiflora incarnata is just a touch a touch beyond where we want, where it wants to be comfortable and prolific in our climate. Um, but um, continuing to be like, are you sure? Maybe if I save, save a few seeds from your earliest blossoms and plant you out, we can be, you know, just doing that incremental, not looking for the silver bullet that just is automatically, I mean, it doesn't, you know, like with peanuts, I grew up growing peanuts and we grew peanuts once and we harvested five peanuts off five plants and I was like that was a waste of garden space dad (laughs) and I've never been a (laughs) I've never been a practical person ever but then there's this family in the upper peninsula of Michigan who shared their northern hardy Valencia peanut with me and I was so skeptical but turns out they had been selecting it in their garden for over 30 years 
And it's incredibly like on the coldest season on record, which we've had the coldest and the warmest season on record in the last 10 years that fruition has existed. And the coldest season on record, they still produced over 20 peanuts per plant. Um, like, and then in the warmest season on record, over 40, 43 peanuts per plant. It was amazing. So hmm. like, yes, if you have the imagination and the patience, you can do just about anything. So we're working, we're working on passion flower at the moment, among <laughs> what, others. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 when do you get to the point where you say, ah, let's just pull the plug on, on this, but obviously you want this to succeed. You know, it depends with something like chia, like they're the day length was the issue. So we were just like, oh yeah, we can't, we can grow seven foot chia here, but it doesn't flower. So it's not going to go to seed. Um, this, because we can grow some, I mean, and honestly, even if we just continue to, I'll be growing them for the rest of my life just because I love the plant and I love the medicine. So, and clearly we can save some seed so we can begin that long, slow arc. So it might be, <laughs> it might be 2040. It might be never that we'll commercially share it, but we'll always have those seeds and be continuing to make those little incremental processes. So it's a journey. <laughs> so what do you think folks, uh, what do you, what are you uh, really proud of this year? What do you think folks should be uh, checking out uh, from uh, fruition seeds? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm certainly biased. You realize every mother has beautiful and brilliant babies. Right, and right. I'm no exception. We have over 45 new varieties that are so beautiful and I'm really, I'm so excited about this. Spotlight Snow Pea, check out it's green and purple and they're bush. So they're perfect two and a half feet for containers and they are super sweet as well. Wait, wait, wait. Put, the, put, put, the, put that, that, that other package back up again. Okay. Compact Snow Pea. I have to tell you something. I'm glad that you, you brought that up because I have not had good luck growing peas. All right. What am I doing wrong? Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think. When Mark, do you. Oh, I, I was gonna, a few keys. Oh, yeah. Go for it, Mike. Oh, I'm just going to say, I think I get them out too late. And I think that's my problem is that I don't take advantage of the cooler weather. Yes. Unlike you, they love the cool. <laughs> they <laughs> want to be out in your garden right now <laughs> or very, very soon. And really here in Zone 5, if you are planting them after, say, the second week in May they're they're likely going to grow but they're going to be so stressed in the heat so honestly as soon as the snow melts and the soil can be worked you if you're planting radishes planting your peas that's the moment that's okay. the moment all right well a couple of weeks ago uh we had uh, lisa hilgenberg from the chicago botanic garden and she explained why why i wasn't doing well with spinach and now i understand why i'm not doing well with peas and it's basically the same thing the snow goes get out there and, uh, yep. and and plant those things. All right, what else you got? I'm so excited about these Evansville Ember beets. Just take a look. Can you see the color? They're like wow. tie dyed beets. They're yeah, so like, beautiful. Like, and our dear friend with other things, yeah. <laughs> our yeah, dear friend Silva actually created this beet. Um, and yeah, there's so much more to share. We have the full story on our blog and it's really beautiful. And I'm speaking of beautiful, we just got this in the mail. We crossed a green cone-headed cabbage with a purple cone-headed cabbage. And we've been sharing about it on social media. And this marvelous human that we don't even know just fell in love with this cabbage 
it's called Mermaid's Tale, um, a collaborative, we're growing it in collaboration with a farm and their CSA that they've been sharing in the first three generations of this, their CSA named it. We put it out to their entire CSA um, and this, they came up with all these different names and then we voted on them. And so Mermaid's Tale it is. Um, but yeah, then Lyd saw this beautiful photo online of me holding these cabbages and then she, this is a water color and then it just arrived in the mail <laughs> and they're as beautiful as this and then some and they're so delicious very sweet and tender um so it's a really i'm really 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 delighted to share these Those, seeds that looks great i mean that that is such a beautiful <laughs> plant uh that's why you would grow it is is for the artistic value of it at the very least <laughs> I, when people ask me, like, what is my favorite ornamental? I'm like, oh, eggplant. Uh, <laughs> Russell sprouts. <laughs> because and of the clearly cabbage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and one of the things I, I note on your website is that uh, you are getting more and more um, literature that people can take advantage of. You've got uh, the... Um, the library, um, uh, growing different plants, microgreens, radishes, and turnip, tomatoes, squash. Um, tell us a little bit about your library. Yeah, well, for years, for a decade, we've been creating all of these things, and we redesigned our website last year, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. How about we have them all together? <laughs> and we call it our growing library because, of course, it helps you and us all grow things, grow seeds better, but also because it's growing. We're constantly creating new growing guides and new ebooks and all kinds of things. So it, the library grows all the time, too. And, you know, it's, it's free for all because this is, I mean, nothing that we come up with, right? We've learned from so many people around us, we stand on the shoulder of giants of 10,000, of 40,000, of a lifetime times a million of humans co-adapting with plants. So yeah. it is the smallest token of our affection to be able to share all of these resources at Fruition's website. Well, folks um, need to... I wanted Oh, go ahead. I wanted to share too. We have all kinds of when to grow. So here's, um, yeah, we have this great chart that is when to grow things. Uh. <laughs> and so it, this is a postcard that we send out in, um, in every order. And you can also download it for free on our website. And it's also a part of our book, Rising, Rise and Shine, Starting Seeds with Ease, that is part of, you know, you can purchase a paper copy, but you'll find the free 40-page ebook in that growing library. And there we have our free online course that's Starting Seeds with Ease as well, that has over 100 step-by-step -step video tutorials to you know, begin to accompany each other, whether you've gardened one year or 50 years, there's always more yep. to share, more to learn, and we're all in it together. And, and I'm sure Skeet is ordering his seeds right now. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Skeet. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on. You are, you are nothing if not effervescent. And, um, <laughs> And we appreciate having Thank you. you. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to a good growing season. I hope folks take advantage of it. Of course, uh, you can go to fruitionseeds.com. It's that simple. The links are on 
my blog uh, if you can't remember that. Um, and uh, But just go to fruitionseeds.com. Petra Page, man, uh, thank you. Uh, and by the way, I don't know if we mentioned that you're one of the founders of it, you and Matthew, right? And now you've got a, a mm-hmm. bunch of people on staff. So uh, you're you're getting bigger and bigger all the time. And we're transitioning to employee ownership, so we all can be a part of it. <laughs> well, that's right. Yes, I forgot Even about more so than we already are. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, good it's luck really with that. It's going to be uh, there'll be a learning curve there, but I think uh, you guys are going to do great. <laughs> <laughs> employee ownership, passion flower, peanuts. We got this. <laughs> all right, Petra. Bye, friends. So good to see you, Peggy. Enjoy, so good enjoy to see your skiing today. Enjoy going skiing today. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it, it's let us know. I mean, happy spring. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's it's a schizoid world. Uh, we'll talk to you soon, Petra. Take care. Bye, friends. Uh, Bye. We've got uh, Phenology coming up. Stick around. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malek. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. Starting seeds with fluorescence? Let's talk. You've used fluorescent bulbs for as long as you can remember to start your seeds and they work. We get it. Or you look at alternative lights to start seeds and the fluorescents are noticeably less expensive. We get that too. But I'm here to tell you, you and your plants deserve better. It's time to take seed starting to another level. Here is why a good quality LED grow light does so much better than those fluorescent bulbs. Your seedlings will get a better start in life with stronger stems and no legginess. Not only will they have stronger stems, they will be stronger overall in order to fight off disease. You can get them in the ground faster because the cycle time for growth can be shortened. You will save money overall because you can grow better quality plants in a shorter amount of time with much less energy than you use with fluorescence. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And uh, we're here, look at uh, on our screen here, and if you're listening uh, uh, on the podcast, uh, we got left and right, Alyssa Rosemartin, who's with the USA National Phenology Network. A good morning, Alyssa. Good morning. Thanks for having us on. Oh, it, it's such a pleasure to talk about this because it, it's so important. Uh, also, um, Jean Linsner. Uh, who is, uh, she calls herself a citizen scientist, but it, there's a little more background to that, uh, and, and we'll get into that in just a second. Jean, welcome. Thank you. Nice uh, to be here. You know, uh, here's how I want to start with this, because we're, we're talking about phenology today, and, and I think a lot of people just scratch their heads. And as I was writing <laughs> my, uh, my blog post yesterday, I, I figured out a couple of things. One is that every time I typed in the word phonology, I got the red squiggly line underneath. So my, my program doesn't even understand the word phonology. And then, even worse, 
is, uh, and you guys don't have to deal with this, but because I do a blog and I'm doing uh, social media and so forth, I have to pay attention to something called search engine optimization, okay, which is the bane of my existence. Um, and, and they're telling me how to, how to write. And, and if you want to get under my skin quickly, tell me that my writing is not good. Um, that, that will make me tense. Um, and one of the things I realized is that every time I typed in the word phenology, my SEO score went down. It just shot down. And I went, come on, folks. You know, there, there are more than uh, uh, 12-year-olds reading this. It's a science blog to some degree. You got to say the word mm-hmm. phenology at some point. Uh, so it, it led me to ask you guys, and I'll start with you, Alyssa, um, why, what is phenology? Why don't more people know about it? Yeah, it's kind of an obscure word for something that's actually everyone knows all about. It's the timing of seasonal events in nature. So when birds migrate, when flowers bloom. And so we're all phenologists and, um, you know, actually for thousands of years on this continent, right, from in many great indigenous traditions of studying the seasonal cycles um, up to, you know, everyone noticing a robin in their backyard uh, today. Sorry, we're all phenologists. But it is this sort of... Um, 18th century natural history word that sort of is not very commonly used. So sometimes we just say we're looking at the shifting seasons or we're doing um, signs of spring. And I think people more readily know what we're talking about. Yeah. uh, And if you put it that way, it's it's absolutely clear uh, what you're doing, but it's got to have a a name. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. it's called phenology. Um, and so what my goal is this morning is to help people understand what it is and, and why it's important. So for instance, I'm going to pop this map up here, um, that is on your website. It's, it's not the easiest thing to see, but you can see the colors there. What does this represent, Alyssa? Yeah, so this is our um, status of spring map. So we're showing um, blue areas are where spring arrived later than the long-term average. So the we take the average date that we estimate that leaf out happened in um, shrubs like lilacs and honeysuckles. And we say, did this year come a little earlier or a little mm-hmm. later than that long-term average? So the blue areas are showing late. So a lot through a lot of the Southeast, um, spring was a little bit late this year. And then we're just starting to see um, through the midsection of the country and definitely on the West Coast, some earlier, some earlier springs. And this just means it's warming up nor, uh, a bit faster than the average spring this it's, year. It, it's, it's interesting uh, looking at this map because there's so many blues where the spring is later in the central and southern part of the country. But if, as you get north, uh, those turn to reds, which are, are earlier um, but do we have any idea what it's going to look like as this, those um, uh, colors advance towards Chicago and Minneapolis? Yeah, you know, this is a, a big – so the, our, we have a forecast, but it's only uh, six days uh, forward, so it's not going to tell us much. Um, and we're, we're working with collaborators at Cornell University on a longer lead forecast, like a six-week forecast, which I think will be really useful for like, – I know myself as a gardener, I'd love to know – um, a little sooner than I do, what it's going to look like. So at this point, we just look at the NOAA uh, climate outlooks, where it says it, right now for the eastern half of the country, it looks like it's going to be a warmer than usual next couple of months. So I would expect us to see more pinks and reds um, as this map fills mm-hmm. in, but maybe not extreme. 
Well, here's a map that is not on your site. This is from uh, Yale Environment 360. Uh, Peggy sent this to me. Um, And this map shows that spring is starting sooner and growing warmer in general. And if, if you look at this map, you can see that with the exception of <laughs> North and South Dakota, um, it's, uh, spring is starting sooner and, uh, and is, is warmer. Uh, in Chicago area, by about uh, one uh, degree, two degrees, rather. Two degrees. Uh, yeah. And um, um, ha- have you seen this map before? Alyssa? I don't think I've seen this particular map, but definitely I, that same, uh, we, we definitely know that spring is getting warmer and spring is getting earlier across many, many species, like lots of studies from like amphibians to birds to plants are showing earlier spring activity, although with some exceptions, um, some, some animals and plants aren't, or some plants aren't getting enough winter chill and are coming later, but overall we are seeing Mm -hmm. this pattern. And I think that's, part of what motivates our network is to get out and observe um, what these warmer temperatures mean uh, seasonally. Yeah. And uh, the way you find out about these is, is uh, with uh, the help of a lot of citizen scientists across the country. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. People like Jean who uh, look at plants and also organize others to, in community to help us shed light on these patterns. Yeah, um, which takes us to Jean uh, as a citizen scientist. You've been working or, or ha- and continue to work uh, on a project that is uh, very close to me, which is uh, uh, the 606, sometimes known as uh, the Bloomingdale Trail. And, um, and uh, this is that... Uh, the, if for those who are not familiar with the 606, Jean, I will let you explain what that is. Okay. It is an elevated train line that was converted into a recreation pathway back in 2016. And through a lot of, um, through the city of Chicago, the Trust for Public Land, uh, the Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail, and all sorts of citizens groups, Um, and others uh, created this amazing new space on uh, that runs um, roughly between Armitage, uh, just south of Armitage, excuse me. And it runs from Ashland on the east all the way to Ridgeway. So it's a nearly a three mile, 2.7 mile long elevated trail that is um, an amazing new site for Chicago. Uh, yeah, and uh, it is it is quite popular. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and if you've ever been up there with your bicycle or even walking, and seeing the uh, the traffic coming and going, um, it can actually be uh, a little scary sometimes when there's a, a lot of people up there um, trying to share this. But there's in addition to people um, and the uh, the paved path. There is, there's a lot of plant material up there. What kind of plant material was put up there, Jean, and how are you uh, monitoring that? Well, uh, we, the, the trail um, is an amazing collection of plants, and the plant palette uh, is, is a four-season design, and it, um, uh, we worked with... Uh, there's a nice shot of it. Um, we worked with a, a lead artist, Francis Whitehead, who designed Environmental Sentinel, 
which is the name of the project, which is a trail-wide uh, flowering uh, plant installation. And what you're looking at uh, is the trail uh, and flowering service berries, or Amelanchier grandiflora um, autumn brilliance. Frances's design was, uh, she started with a question. Uh, because the trail is a linear path and it, it's due east-west, the east end is about two miles from Lake Michigan and the west end is roughly five miles from Lake Michigan. Her question was, could, you, could flowering plants visualize the lake effect of uh, Lake Michigan in spring across flowering plants? So from east to west on the trail are hundreds of uh, service berry trees. And we work with volunteers uh, to monitor using Nature's Notebook, which is the um, citizen science monitoring program through uh, the USA National Phenology Network. And uh, what you're looking at right now is one of the things that um, we had to learn. Um, we're learning out loud with this project. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a service berry. That, um, and you'll notice that the buds, those little triangular type things, are the buds for the flowers and the leaves come out afterwards. Um, so it's a mixed bud plant and um, wonderful to watch. And what we're trying to figure out is, is there a difference in the bloom times between the west end and the east end? The uh, mm -hmm. hypothesis is that the uh, west end would start to bloom a little bit earlier because uh, Lake Michigan will hold on to the cold in spring a little bit longer uh, into the, the early spring. And, uh, and of course, anybody who uh, has an amelanchier knows that it ends up like this. Uh, and, and folks, if you're on the 606, don't be afraid to grab some berries because they're really good. And uh, get a hold of them uh, before the birds do because uh, <laughs> they, they will clean those uh, shrubs. In my backyard, they just they, they wipe out my amelanchier. And uh, I, I almost never – a couple of years ago, I actually put a little netting around one of the branches just so I could get some of the berries uh, on my amelanchier. But you guys are – You grow them for the birds. You what? You grow for the robins. You grow them for the robins, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. No, I love seeing the robins out there chowing down and some and some other larger <laughs> birds. Uh, but I want I want to you know every now and then I just want to taste a little bit of, mm -hmm. uh, of the amelanchier berries myself. But uh, in this case, you're not interested in the birds or or, or so much. Well, you might be interested in in the berries and when they form, you know, when the bloom mm -hmm. comes out, and and I I suspect and how it varies across the trail. Right, and going east to west, and and that's just a a, a terrific idea. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a, an accident of the construction of this rail line that went east to west, and now you've got the the uh, the trail up there. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things about the uh, the USA National Phonology Network. And by the way, if you want to go there, it's just usanpn.org. I've got the link uh, on my blog post. Uh, you can find that, and I'm sure that Peggy is going to send that out to the yeah, chat. I've posted that, yeah. Great. And uh, you mentioned the Nature's Notebook campaigns. And, Alyssa, you've got a lot of those all over the place. Uh, all, all over the country so uh, citizen scientists can get involved, right? 
Yes, absolutely. So uh, there's so many ways to participate in Nature's Notebook. You can be part of a local phenology project, which is what the Environmental Sentinel program that Jean was just describing is. You can participate as a lone individual in your backyard, um, collecting data on what this, what you're interested in that might help you with your gardening decisions or help you understand um, if you're if you have uh, fruits available for the robins at the right time. Um, or you can participate in one of our, maybe we have about a dozen um, campaigns in different regions of the U.S. where we're trying to get observers um, across the region to cooperate and look at the similar species to answer a particular question. So a few of the ones that are relevant to the Chicago Great Lakes area um, are, and one coming, thinking of the flowering work on the 606, there's Nectar Connectors, which um, is looking at a bunch of um, like milkweed and goldenrod and other species that are important for neck uh, um, monarchs and other um, nectar feeding um, animals and and insects, and so um, th so you can you can observe those flowering plants in your backyard if you want to join up with nectar connectors. Um, there's also the Quercus Quest, which is in collaboration with folks at the Morton Arbor Arboretum, where we're looking at um, a bunch of species related to white oak and bur oak and trying to track their phenology and understand how that connects to genetics and hybridization as part of a National Science Foundation funded project. And then um, Pesky Plant Trackers is um, looking at Japanese knotweed and wild parsnip blooming to help people who are trying to control those two invasive species to know when they've um, when they've gone to flower or seed so that they can control them before that happens. So range of campaigns for a range of different questions from like science to management um that might be of interest to folks yeah actually yeah. You all, also, that, all, the, all that campaign also, stuff and um ways to connect with local projects or ways to observe on your own that's all on our um, website you've also got a great e-newsletter that people can sign up for that just kind of it tracks the phenology through the spring season and then the fall color Yes, definitely. We try to we try to turn the data back around to people as much as possible and show visualizations and show graphics and um, make sense of it all as it's all coming in from across the country. Yeah, some of the other projects you mentioned several there. There's uh, the lilacs and dogwoods. You can uh, uh, observe those cycles. Um, the green wave. Um, you observations of flowering and leaf color in maples, oaks, and poplars. Um, the Redbud Phenology Project, uh, looking at the Eastern Redbud, Pollen Trackers, uh, Mountain Cedar uh, is one of the most important causes of seasonal allergies in Texas, and uh, you have people watching out for that. Mayfly, I mean, there's just cool stuff. Uh, and so let's say somebody wants to do some of this uh, observation work. What, what kind of time commitment is it? It really depends on, um, and maybe we could let Jean speak to that too. I think it really depends on the question um, that you're um, interested in or the campaign you're participating in. Generally, we say once once or twice a week to go out and look at your plants during the active growing season so that you're catching those transitions um, pretty tightly to the, to the date that it's happening. But, you know, you could be, if you're in Texas looking at a cedar um, that might be active all year round versus thinking of the short season. If you're just trying to catch just maple flowering, you might not be out for as long a time. So I think it does really vary. Uh, Jean, you want to address that? Sure. Um, 
what phonology, the first part of the word is from Greek and it means to appear. And so you're trying to find out when something's going to happen. And so with nature's notebook using their uh, protocols, you're, you're, you could go out today and look to see what's going on and you would answer, no, it's not happening. But a bunch of no's are really good to get because ultimately you'll get to a yes. And then you <laughs> pin, that's what triangulates to when whatever you're looking for happens in the uh, phenophases. So um, we encourage people um, for, for uh, surface berries, for example, uh, April through July is really where they're, um, they're, they flower, they leaf, they fruit, and then the fruit goes away either by humans, um, like uh, our friends from the um, uh, Bloomingdale Trail, they make uh, a, sor- um, a gelato or a sorbet out of uh, the service berries mm-hmm. in the, or uh, an Italian mm-hmm. ice, I should say, which is really kind of fun, and uh-huh. uh, or for the birds. And uh, so it's, for us, there's a real intensive time, but then over the summer, it's just leaf, 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 until we get back into the fall where we get this amazing a uh, brilliant orange color on, on the plants. So there's kind of an ebb and flow, but April through July, it's really good to get out there every few days because you want to try to capture that, that yes, that first yes after a series of no's <laughs> in the question protocols. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, I was looking at some of the data um, from the service berries. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just, just I think, tying back to getting out every couple of days and seeing what's happening. And some of the data I was looking at that was saying within 48 hours of the, of an 80 degree temperature over time, it was showing that you were starting to get a change in the trees that people would see. Right. So what's interesting is, you know, there's a, there's a plan. Um, the idea that, um, there was, um, uh, um, Mark Schwartz, who's up at um, University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, did uh, a a reasonable study to show whether or not we could understand uh, or or see a change in um, from west to east with the Mm -hmm. the blooming trees. And, you know, it could be from one to 10 days. That was what was estimated before, you know, on paper. But when you start to get on the trail and start looking at these things, the first year we did have an 80 degree day and all of a sudden everything just bloomed. It seemed like overnight all at once. Um, And so we're in year five now of collecting data and we have a couple of years, you know, 20 and 21 are really thin with data collection because of COVID-19. But um, as the friends of the Bloomingdale trail uh, take over this program from the trust for public land um, on the Chicago park district, park and trail system, they'll be able to start to work with more volunteers and really uh, beef up the uh, amount of data that are collected over time. I should mention that um, um, Alyssa Rose Martin um, has been working with the USA National Phenology Network for 13 years. So uh, you're, you're a veteran of that. And uh, you're, you're based at... Uh, what, the University of Arizona? Yes, yes. I'm research staff at the University of Arizona, though I live in coastal Massachusetts. 
Yeah, so, so that's that's interesting because <laughs> I, I know you're on the east coast so i'm like hmm university of arizona all right all right fine that's that's okay you know you can do these things we've got zoom now in the 21st century. yeah exactly and it was always a national program you know i think one of the great things about it being based in tucson is that we thought about places that are really water limited and we built those yes no status protocols because you would see bloom happen and then stop happening in the um dead like in creosote for example in my backyard in tucson um would would um, bloom up and down several times a year because of the rainfall um and then but now living up here in the northeast i feel like i can give more like local ecological information about what's happening here so i i think as if we're trying to understand the patterns nationally there's sort of some justification yeah. for us being spread around the country. And, and I want to mention that uh, Gene, um, back in the day, uh, was uh, an Exelon fellow um, when the education programs first got started uh, on the 606. What was that all about, Gene? Yes, um, Exelon funded uh, part of the build-out as well as um, uh, put money aside for education programming within um the community and with schools. So we worked and created um, all sorts of different kinds of programs to support helping people understand a linear elevated trail, first of all, how you might use it and um, everything from the history of the people and the foods they brought to Chicago back in the early part of late 19th and early part of the 20th century, as well as the industries that were across um, uh, that this railroad served over time. And then also um, wonderful things like the, the, the plants and um, uh, along the trail. We've also worked with other organizations within um, the city of Chicago. For example, Lincoln Park Zoo has trap cameras up on the trail to see what kind of critters are coming to visit um, across the trail and are doing a study with bats and with other kinds of animals. So that's part of their um, urban uh, wildlife uh, studies and, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, the 606 and the Bloomingdale Trail got to be part of that. Fantastic. All right. Before we go, though, the big question is, what does this have to do with climate change, Alyssa? Yeah, I was actually just going to draw that back up. Um, going back to what Jean had been saying about that 180 degree day that pushed or that kind of messed up your question, right? Like it um, all of the east to west all happened at once because it was so warm. And I think that's definitely something that we see across all of these, many of these projects is that each year is so different. And so we need long-term data in order to really detect the impact of climate change. Um, but certainly where we do have long-term data, we are seeing it. So um, in the uh, IPCC, the uh, international, uh, what is, oh, what is, what does that stand for? The International Panel on Climate Change out of the UN? Yeah. The 2006 mm -hmm. one called phenology, the um, fingerprint, the best way to see the fingerprints of climate change. And we still see it up until the, the AR6 that just came out um, yeah. shows that phenology continues to be one of the best ways to see climate change. But we have to look when we look in our lilac and honeysuckle data that we have going back to the 50s, we see a clear signal of um, a day to two days per decade earlier. Um, and that's attributable to climate change. Um, but we've been observing now um, with Nature's Notebook over about a decade. And in some places, we can see a trend towards earlier, but not across the board, because 10 years is a very short time in terms of um, seeing the impacts of climate change. So we're continuing to monitor over the long term and continuing to see again and again in many um, reports and examples that um, climate change is shifting phenology and we need to be 
um, paying attention. Yeah, you guys uh, are are doing the important work. You're you're showing us uh, in real detail how climate change is affecting everyone, and affecting plants, affecting insects, and um, by association, affecting human beings. Um, and and I, I we should also mention that you mentioned the Morton Arboretum earlier. You're also working with the Chicago Botanic Garden. Uh, Budburst is uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, we, we've talked. It used to be called Project Budburst, and now they just call it Budburst. Um, and uh, um, Kerry Havens uh, has been on our show several times uh, to to talk about that. But uh, uh, among the other things you do, before I let you go, uh, I thought was interesting from your website. And, and again, you want to know the practical application of phenology, even if you don't know what the word is. Um, a, uh, it, that includes management of invasive species and forest pests, predictions of human health-related events such as allergies and mosquito season. We mentioned the allergies a little earlier. Uh, optimization of when to plant, fertilize, and harvest crops. Boy, that's not important, is it? Um, <laughs> understanding the timing of ecosystem processes such as carbon cycling and assessment of the vulnerability of species, you know, populations and ecological communities to ongoing climate change. This is all really important stuff. So you and the citizen scientists uh, are, are doing yeoman's work here and alerting us to what the future is going to be. Thank you. Well, I think we're so grateful to have such a big network of citizen scientists, volunteers, program coordinators, researchers who are all, I think, part of the big, the great thing about our network is that it's sort of like what Petra was saying, right? We can't do it alone. We're doing it as a really, these are like big questions in a complicated time and complicated ecosystems. And so it's great to have so many um, hands on deck. Well, it, it is, and, and I really appreciate uh, both of you being here today, and I encourage people to go to, um, first of all, the Nature's Notebook campaign and, and see what you're doing and, and how you might volunteer. Sign up. To, yeah, yeah, sign up, get your observations there, and of course, you can just go to usanpn.org um, and find it there, or you can go to the links on my blog post, um, Alyssa and Jean, uh, thank you so much for being on the program. I think I'm hoping that we've enlightened people as to the importance of phenology. I mean, it, somebody had to do it. It's a dirty, thankless job. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed being on here in the conversation today. All right. Great. Thanks, thank Mike. you. Thanks, Peggy. Okay. Well, I, we'll have to do this again because phenology is not going away. Um, all okay. right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're going to talk, speaking of environment and um, sustainability, we got some stories coming up. Stick around, and we'll share them with you. Hi, I'm Megan Kosensky, and these are Don Redwoods. These are one of my favorite trees, and I've spent a lot of time with my family in Northern California looking at the coastal redwoods, which are a different species, but... They bear a lot of similarities to the Dawn Redwoods that we have here on the East Coast. And because they're so similar, you know, they act as a reminder of all my memories that I have with my family. The first time that I saw the coastal redwoods was when I visited my aunt and uncle in Northern California, and they asked what I wanted to do for my 20th birthday. I wanted to go and see the redwoods, and we spent a day touring through the forest, um, seeing these massive trees and 
I think that was the first time that I was really like starstruck by trees. And a couple years later, I became an arborist at Bartlett. So 20 years ago, my mom and her siblings planted a Dawn Redwood in uh, memory of my uncle Kevin. They planted it in his favorite place along the water in Laguna Beach, California. My aunt put a time capsule in the ground so that one day, you know, in a couple hundred years, someone will find it and learn about him and his memory will keep living on. There's so many memories within these trees for me and I think for my entire family. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sip-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. And there it fades out again. Uh, obviously, somebody didn't set the uh, thing Ba-dum. correctly. But I'm bum. But I'm bum. Bum. All right. Hey, uh, welcome. Those, 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 I was going to say those redwoods in that Bartlett spot are just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, there's a lot of great trees out there. Um, oh, let's see. Dan Costa says, Snow crocus started blooming here last Sunday, still in bloom today. So speaking of phenology um, and uh, what's mm-hmm. going on. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to mention. Part, I saw, part of I, why to get out every day, like, like we were talking. Yeah. Of just see yeah. what's different. See, see how, learn to read the subtle changes as opposed to the obvious Sure. That's, yeah. That's all phenology. Uh, and somebody, uh, po- free sham. Did you see that? Uh, good morning and <laughs> yes, good growing near San Diego. Uh, well, thank you for watching near San Diego. Love your goofy show. Goofy? Who's goof- who? Who are you calling Goofy? <laughs> who are you? Really? <laughs> what? Goofy show I have. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Um, lots going on. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is yeah. the final day of the One Earth Film Fest. You're going to be seeing another trailer uh, at the bottom of the hour here. Um, yeah. And uh, as, as Peggy said, there's, what, four films you can still see today. Four films today, yeah. Go to oneearthfilmfest.org. For those, uh, those are free, but there's a suggested $8 donation as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, even even if you don't go, send them a do- donation. Just yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Make 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 sure you do that. Yeah, you'll learn something from any of the films. Yeah, even absolutely. if it's a topic that you know, it's it's sometimes it's amazing on those films because we've watched a lot of them over the years. Where you look at a topic and you go, hmm, I don't know, but you watch it, it's like, wow, that was really good. Yeah, yeah I yeah. learned a lot. Uh, so we want people to take advantage of that, but also starting this week is the uh, CCGA, the Chicago Community mm-hmm. Gardeners Association ninth annual conference. Um, I don't Our know- challenge to build and thrive. 
yeah. Um, it's their thing. And yeah. that's over so, a, a number of days as well. It's from uh, uh, the March 16th through 30th. Yep. I'm, I'm looking at the, this is the, the email came out this morning. So that's what I'm reading off of. Um, ah, okay. Starts March 16th at 5 p.m. with an all hands on deck to conserve monarch butterflies, a conversation with Wendy Caldwell of Monarch Joint Venture about the state of monarch conservation efforts and what we can do about it. And then they've got some things going that evening, um, <clears throat> including building a community through conservation at home, a panel on stewardship and native plant gardening with a Gemini Balsad and Valerie Kehoe, friend of the show, um, right. University of Illinois Extension, and several other people. Um, and you can, it's a whole series of uh, Zoom events for the conference. So you can pop in and out whenever there's going to be materials available, et cetera. And then there's um, a CCGA 10th anniversary celebration in August at the Garfield Park Conservatory that all attendees will get a, a ticket to. Suggested donation, $25 for adults, 15 for students, and scholarships are available. So wherever you are, even if you're in San Diego, mm -hmm. you can take advantage I'll put, of that. I'll pop that up in the link, um, or you can go to... This is a, a Zoom event link. I'll pop up into the chat, but uh, ccga.org for more information. Uh, and I don't, and I need to pop that up uh, on the uh, blog post, and I'll do that after the show. Uh, that's one I forgot to put up there because I also have, uh, starting tomorrow, the Loyola University Chicago uh, Climate Change Conference, and I think we'll be chatting a little bit about this with uh, Mr. DeMaio when he shows up, because that's one of the places he teaches. Uh, the intersection of climate change, human health, and justice uh, starts tomorrow. That conference runs from the 14th through the 18th. So that's uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And uh, we've, we've got the link to that up on our site. Um, there's a, on Monday, it's climate change and population health, a one health perspective. Um, Tuesday, a better tomorrow, the role of sustainability in healthcare and built environments. To, uh, also on Tuesday is the keynote, uh, which is a conversation on the intersection of climate change, human health and justice. Um, Wednesday, Unequal impact, environmental racism, and faith-based resources and restorative justice. And speaking of race or uh, uh, faith-based, that um, the um, conference that we mentioned, uh, John Lee told us about, is happening today. Um, hmm. And um, Lincoln Park. Yeah, that's from last week's show. Right. We mentioned that, and uh, I'll find that in a second because I, I know it's on our Facebook page. Uh, Thursday, Innovating for Climate Change. Park Interfaith Climate Summit. Yes, I believe it starts at 3 10 or 11. No, three? it starts at 3. Okay, uh, something uh, else started at 11 today. I couldn't recall which one. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it starts. Uh, I would need to track that down again. Ah, and uh, of course, I've, I've lost. There we are. There's back to the conference. And so anyway, that's uh, it's just some of the stuff going on at uh, the School of Environmental Sustainability at Loyola mm -hmm. University, Chicago. And, and uh, you can be part of that as well. It's uh, online. So take advantage. Mm -hmm. It's been uh, pretty, pretty.
pretty quiet with Save Belbo Prairie this week. I haven't heard much. I don't know if you've seen anything. Well, they had a, they had a a meeting. I was unable to attend um, earlier in the week, um, and I don't. And I think it's it's you know a quiet yeah. time now. Now yeah. that the decision has been made uh, that uh, nothing's going to happen until June first. So yeah. it, it uh, lets it lets all the politicians off the hook for a little bit. They can move on to to other things. Yeah. Uh, but it means there is. An- there's an airport board meeting though on March 24th. So if you go to savebellbowprairie.org, you can keep up with that. But yeah, but it means that we still have to keep keep going. I know they're still looking for um, prairie watchdogs to sign up as well to make sure nothing's happening. Yeah. Now you sent me uh, an article from the center, actually a press release from the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, uh, the, the headline omnibus budget ignores climate emergency extinction crisis. Well, you know, that's, let's put those on the back burner. Uh, we don't need to get to those guys yet. Um, the, um, this was on March 9th when it came mm-hmm. out. Um, and this is, uh, and this past, um, just the other day. Yeah. But the and bill what, what itself, the, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to, I was going to say one of the points it's making, um, you know, and you'll re, as you'll read through it for our listeners um, is dollar amounts aren't adjusted for inflation of, of funding. The well, funding yeah, what, what they say because of inflation, bill. the bill's modest increases to agency budgets are in fact a cut in real mm-hmm. dollars from the previous year. The Environmental Protection Agency received an increase of just 3%, far less than President Biden's request, which, you know, this is when you start compromising because we need more bombs. Um, and, uh, and anyway. And, which, and walls, as it, as it says at the bottom, too. And, and what? And walls. Walls. We need more border walls. And apparently. If you read, to, yeah, if you read to the bottom. Um, it says leftover funding, the border wall continues. Which is That's insane. A, yeah. Just insane. Um, so at any rate, um, uh, the, uh, it, you know, it's it, in some ways going backward. Um, funding for endangered species would be left virtually unchanged with funding for the recovery of the nation's 800, 1,800 endangered species increasing just three million dollars or sixteen hundred dollars per species ah, that's all the species needs uh, so no federal agency would be able to regulate the use of lead ammunition despite a recent scientific paper concluding that half of america's bald eagles continue to be poisoned every year by lead ammunition you know excuse me in some ways we're just not paying attention or somebody's paying attention but not the right people so uh let's move on here um to more um sad news um and i saw this you sent me an article about this but i i saw it as well um fears for this is in the guardian fears for bees as the United States set to extend use of toxic pesticides that paralyze insects. And that we're talking about neonicotinoids. 
Um, there, the EPA is poised to allow the use of four uh, neonicotinoids, uh, which um, harm bees, butterflies, and other insects, uh, for the next 15 years, despite moves by the European Union to ban the use of toxins that have been blamed for widespread insect declines. Um, I'm not going to name the four because I can't even pronounce them. Um, even they're going to approve these uh, neonicotinoids for the next 15 years, even though the agency has noted ecological risks of concern, particularly to pollinators and aquatic invertebrates. Ah, this is what compromise yeah. gets you sometimes. It says, well, but while states such as Connecticut and New Jersey have enacted some curbs on neonicotinoids, the U.S. federal government is set to bend to pressure from farming groups and pesticide makers to perpetuate their use nationally. Just letting you know. Um, and a couple of um, stories about oil and gas. Uh, inside Climate News uh, did a, a story called Whatever His Motives, Putin's War in Ukraine is Fueled by Oil and gas, um, and and we've talked about it uh, a number of times uh, on the show. Well, certainly in the in the last couple of weeks, um, it's uh, um, the Ukrainian Hydro Meteorological Institute uh, spokesperson from there said that um, human induced climate change and the war on Ukraine have the same roots: fossil fuels and our dependence on them, you know, whether it's, it's fueling all the, the war machines that are going into Ukraine, which is, is part of the deal, or uh, whether the pipeline from Russia to the EU uh, is, is going to be built or suspended. Um, it all revolves around petroleum. And now uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, e- even... Um, the stories we hear in uh, our own country about gas prices uh, going up. Um, and then we get that focus on, well, how can we allow this to happen? And now I see that the, the uh, some states are considering um, removing the taxes on petroleum. And, and, and I, and I, and I get that response cities like Chicago, but uh, my feeling is don't do that because that money is 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 needed and i think it should hurt to uh drive uh, uh an internal combustion powered vehicle it should hurt and we're not even close to what the european prices for petroleum have been a gasoline have been for for decades um it, you know maybe we need to get used to the new normal is what I say here. Now, that said, I understand there's a lot of people whose lives depend on that um, and driving. But, you know, if you want to make omelets, you got to break eggs. And so, so at some point, we have to wean ourselves from that. So my feeling so, is yeah. I, I don't agree with removing the taxes from that. I think it should hurt. And it, it makes us aware of what that wars are being fought over gas and oil. And other things. Yeah, I can read this this passage from the Inside Climate News article we're talking about. Um, yeah, 
No one knows how instability in the Russian petrostate will play out, but it will certainly have implications for climate change. U.S. oil and gas producers have seized the moment as an opportunity to push for the expansion of their export infrastructure as an investment in energy security. If they succeed in pushing through these multi-billion dollar projects, it will lock in future business and carbon emissions for years to come. But at the same time, environmental activists see an opportunity to rally support for redoubling efforts on clean energy. Bill McKibben says, quote, this feels like it may be one of the last real choice points we get on this journey. He said last week in an interview on MSNBC, quote, if we can't bring ourselves to do this while we're watching the pictures of people demonstrating just incredible courage in Ukraine, that I don't know if we're ever going to. I'm with him. I'm, I'm completely with him on, on that thing. Um, and uh, Yale Environment 360 has a kind of a related story about um, methane emissions. And uh, their headline is why methane is a large and underestimated threat to climate goals. I saw something recently, and I couldn't find it. I was looking for it, uh, but I couldn't find it before the show, um, um, maps of where methane. But but this story has some maps, and you look at the methane emissions um, global monthly uh, mean methane, and uh, and the chart just <laughs> just goes up. It's just yeah. straight up from 1980 to 2020. Um, um, thanks to constantly rising emissions, the concentration of methane in the atmosphere has almost tripled since pre-industrial times. A far bigger increase than for the most important gas, carbon dioxide. Last month, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration published data showing a record jump in 2021 to 1,900 parts per billion compared to a pre-industrial level of 700 parts per billion. The gas is responsible for around 30% of current warming according to the IEA. Um, it says, although fossil fuel emissions may still be growing, soaring methane emissions are now primarily the result of faster growing biogen biogenic sources. Quote, most of the increase has been from natural wetlands, flooded rice fields, landfills, and livestock in the tropics. There's a growing concern that this surge may be a feedback from climate change as a warmer and wetter environment increases the activity of methane generating microbes. And uh, uh, the good news is that uh, the sources of some of the sources, which are leaky pipes and that sort of thing, um, once identified, can usually be sh shut cheaply by plugging wells and sealing leaks in pipelines. Mm -hmm. And many such measures, uh, Yale 360 Yale reports, could deliver financial gains through the sale of saved methane. So... I mean, it's it's something we have the power to change, uh, in some yeah. regard. Uh, we yeah, can we can do better. Yeah, uh, yeah. But although the recalibration to emphasize methane reductions is supported by much of the climate science community, it remains to be seen whether it will find favor among climate negotiators. There's no formal wow. proposal to the UN Climate Convention from any government to make the change. Any such proposal would be contentious because it would have important implications for how countries reduce their emissions. There would be winners among countries with good potential to cut methane and losers among those without. 
this uh, guy quoted in here is doubtful negotiators will want to open that can of worms. He says the UN political process is, quote, much more conservative and appears irreversibly committed to using the 100-year time frame in spite of much evidence that it's not fit for the purpose of meeting temperature targets. If so, then halting the warming of the planet anytime soon just got harder. Oh, boy. Well, on, on that note, on that note, let's let's go to. Don't have to worry about spiders, though. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> the big spiders. Okay, you talk about the big spider. I'll talk about the moth and the caterpillar. I'll talk about the moth. Talk uh, about the spiders. Uh, go ahead. Well, there's some renaming going on. The uh, remember the. Well, okay. If if I said to you, beware of the spongy moth, you would say, "What's you?" What's a spongy moth? Yeah, well, what's a, a who? A what? We have a moth that's a, that's spongy. What? Yeah. Well, the gypsy moth has a new name, um, and that's just the common name anyway. Uh, yeah. But um, it's now going to be called spongy moth because the word gypsy is considered a derogatory slur against the Romani people. Uh, it was dropped from the list of common names last July by the Entomological Society of America. Uh, and, but the new name was just announced. Um, roll, please. Uh, yeah, really. Um, so the, my only issue with that is I'm wondering what committee was trying to figure out what the new name would be. Spongy Moth sounds kind of cute, actually, uh, given how much devastation that moth causes doesn't have to do with the caterpillars yeah i guess the egg well it's it's chosen no no with the egg mass it's it looks like a rough textured brown sea sponge okay um the egg mass isn't spongy like a kitchen sponge it just has that texture and coloration uh so (laughs) so spongebob um square moth uh, is what it's going to be now. So just call it. Uh, yes, but you know what? It's a memorable name. I guess it is. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, it, according to uh, the Michigan DNR, uh, where it's widespread, um, and here we have it, obviously, it's mm-hmm. in a lot of places yeah. in the U.S., when populations reach a nuisance level, the caterpillars are known to cover just about everything outdoors, and their round waste pellets rain down from the trees. So, oh, it's raining spongy moths. Okay, so that that is the uh, that's that's a not a bad news thing. It's just a informational <laughs> story. Uh, now, spiders, go for it, Peggy. Oh, I have too many oh no! I thought, I thought I thought you were. Oh wait, Dan Costa says I'm sure there was a multi-million-dollar study on the naming. It's quite possible, probably. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So there's so there's um, new spiders that have been moving in, invasive spiders, uh, to much of the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Uh, they're called Joro spiders. Um, J-O-R-O, Joro spiders, yes. It's a palm-sized spider that's largely been confined in the past to warmer southeastern states. (laughs) But they could be expected to colonize colder climates. Hold out your palm. 
as as Peggy says that, hold out your palm, see yeah. how big your palm and is, and and imagine a spider that size. They're they're a large spider native to East Asia, but they've become a common sight throughout Georgia and the southeastern states. They think they're, they're going to be spreading north. Um, there's just a study published in the journal Physiological Entomology that says it's moving north, um, and researchers have discovered them. Um, can grow to be about three inches long. It gets its name from Jorogumo, which in Japanese folklore can turn itself into a beautiful woman to prey on unsuspecting men. Yeah, yeah, blaming the women again. Always blaming the women. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, the guys ruin the planet, and we're always blaming the women. But it says, you know, don't. the article goes on to say they're not harmful, and they may have an effect, a beneficial effect on local agriculture. Um, and could be beneficial to native predators like birds as an additional food source. Um, they have a venom, but they're harmless to people and pets. They don't. Apparently, bite their fangs anymore. cannot penetrate yeah. human skin. So, but I, I read another uh, 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 something that came across my uh, inbox. A journalist, a woman who uh, who writes, and I follow her and. She was saying, you think I'm not going to freak out if I see one of these things crawling across the table? Of course I'm going to freak out. Um, I, I'm kind of curious to see one in person just to see how. Yeah, they're, I mean. How big they are. Based on the photo, it's it's pretty spectacular looking. Uh, last but not least, because we need to break. Um, very quickly, um, the uh, this is a, a, a cool story. The endurance. Yeah, there's, has there's been, another version yeah. of it. If you didn't see it in the um, uh, Nat Geo, yeah, I saw it in, in in Nat Geo, and that uh, the wreck of the endurance, um, the Ernest Shackleton expedition uh, from 160 years ago, where the ice got or the ship got caught in the ice uh, in Antarctica, just off of Antarctica, and the ship was crushed, and they bailed. They had to get off the ship. They lived on the ice floe. Uh, for months, um, no one died. No one died. Shackleton in a like a little boat went a, a, a huge distance. Got to I think Argentina and um, found help. And then they had to come all the way back. I mean, there's no GPS. There's no phones. There's nothing. Yeah, they went time. across the island to a marine base. Yeah, and everybody survived it's 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 used to this day by uh, motivators to say this is how teamwork uh succeeds and yeah. uh so now they found the wreck at the bottom of the ocean that's been, of the, that's been amazingly preserved well because water. yeah wet uh, bottom of the Weddell sea because it's so cold and uh there's a little uh um uh degradation uh over the years so you know i i have a feeling that's going to end up in a museum and that's going to be really cool if we don't blow ourselves up, uh, you know, b- before uh, we get a, a chance to do that, who knows? Uh, so, yeah, check out check out those stories. If uh, you're you're intrigued by any of that, please go to the website mikenovak.net. Uh, it's in the bottom of the blog post. I've got links there. And uh, all right, we need to get to meteorologist Rick DeMaio. So stick around for that. 
I've encountered some of the world's most remarkable animals, but many of these seem set to disappear forever. One million species are now threatened with extinction. It's happening in the Amazon, in Africa, in the Arctic. We have a moment when we can change our world. This is that moment. I truly believe that if we make the right decisions, together we can create a better future. Extinction. The Facts. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. Meteorological report brought to you by Rick DeMaio's window uh, and the brick on the other side. Thank you very much. Here he comes. Jax should have been up there. Yeah, we Jax should. You, you, you should put Jax in there. I want Jax to do a report. Some that. Wait, there he is. Oh, hey, Jax. Jax just wants to go out there because he oh, thinks he's, he's yeah. got his bandana on for St. Patty's Day. Yep. Here, watch, Jax. Who's out there? Who's out there? Nope, guess it didn't work this time. <laughs> it didn't work last week either. I know you tried it before. Hey, Does he, he usually just do had it? basil barking for the last 15 minutes. I'm surprised that didn't catch his attention. <laughs> no, it did not. Uh, but he, he already knows that he's going out after I do the show, so that's what he's waiting for. Ah. I mean, for a long walk. He's already been out for a short one this morning. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well. Hi, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Nice, Good brilliant morning. blue sky today. Temperatures uh, yeah, are going feel, up. Woohoo! Yeah, it feels, it feels like it feels like nine thirty-five, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, and, and and for those of our listeners who admitted that they overslept this morning, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> there's a couple. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of people a cop to it. Okay. It, it's funny that you mentioned that the temperature is going up, Peg, because um, yesterday when I was out. It was like one of those days that was cold that was like a real harsh cold. Did you notice that? It was yeah. really the air was extremely yes. dry. Yeah. It was cold, dry, windy, and yeah. It just it just it just sucked the water vapor out of you. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then all that obviously has moved down to the south. I did text my uh, friend from the Weather Channel, Mike Seidel, 
who lives in the uh, Georgia, uh, North Georgia, Marietta, Georgia, outside of um, uh, Atlanta. Any flower or uh, bush damage? Uh, haven't gotten a response from him yet because, you know, they were in the 80s last week. Um, mm -hmm. And when you get really warm, and we saw this a couple of years ago, they got really warm and then they got really cold and they lost a whole bunch of fruit trees um, in that area. You remember that, right, Peg? Yeah. Yeah. And so just, I don't know. I, I don't know what the uh, what the situation is there now, but when you get two to three inches of snow across northern Alabama and Georgia, followed by temperatures five degrees below that hard freeze number of twenty eight, uh, you know that there's lots of damage. And the freeze warnings went all the way down into um, uh, central Florida as well. So uh, this was really a remarkably cold air mass for this time of the year, but more so considering how warm it's been uh, in the southeast for the last almost month to month and a half. So I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't your typical March 13th record cold. It was more like almost April 13th record cold. It was really cold. Yeah, I noticed that uh, yesterday. Uh, happened to have the golf tournament on, and they had they had a whole day that got washed out because uh, all this rain came through. And they were talking about how the temps overnight were going to be in the 30s so these guys yeah. are going to be going out this they were going out this morning in 35 38 degree temperatures um and yeah. and i started wondering about that too which plants were going to take a yeah. hit it's uh and the winds were at uh, 40 miles an hour gusting it was uh what a remarkable day because uh, the day before yeah. it had, or two days before it had been completely calm and warm and wet and then suddenly yeah. everything blew through and uh, the strong winds and the cold temperatures are just uh, plummeting, just a remarkable stop. What was it, Thursday night when we had all that, when we had the snow come through? Yeah, yeah. So Look, we got about we an inch. It went from Flagstaff, Arizona into Ohio was this yeah. Yeah, training. This, this one, it was one long um, jet stream that kind of like got strung out. And then as that second piece of energy came through the Great Lakes, um, that's when everything pivoted over the southeast. It had a very similar look to the storm of the century back in 1993, which actually happened on this date, which was March 12th to 14th. So it's amazing. You, you get a lot of these March storms uh, that had that similar type of late season severe weather on the front side uh, and you know widespread snow on the backside. Um, so this has happened in the past, but I think what's amazing, and as I forgot to mention, Mike Seidel sent me something um, yesterday and said the forecast low on Sunday morning for Atlanta uh, is 21. Uh, this would be the coldest low temperature so far this season, including the fall and the winter. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. That's the coldest so far. Um, uh, the coldest to date this year in Atlanta was 26 it happened on the mornings of January 23rd, 29th, and 30th, and only eight years out of 143 years for Atlanta um, have they been this cold this late after being so warm. Now, um, the other years was 1998, 1993, when we had the storm of the century, when it was 18 degrees, um, 1980, 1960, So. This, this is more like the modern cold I like to look at it as like 93 and 98 because prior to that, the population in the Deep South, you know, wasn't that high. 
So the, the impact isn't as great. Uh, but again, um, this doesn't include the fact that it was so warm across much of the southeast leading up to this. So it'll be interesting to see if we talk about this next week, uh, what type of impact this has had on um, from an agricultural standpoint. I think I think there will be. And here's the uh, the visual uh, of that going across on on Saturday. That's uh... yeah. And, and I think what's remarkable about this, if you notice the Gulf of Mexico, how the clouds had that kind of striated look. That's the cold air that's pushing all the way south. So very similar to the storm of the century in 93, uh, the cold air actually went all the way through the Bay of Campeche, past the Yucatan Peninsula, um, and all the way all the way into Belize. Um, wow. So this jet stream, Peg pointed out, kind of went like from uh, Flagstaff to Ohio. Uh, in 93, it had more of a dip. So it was able to get more of a turn, and then the system actually you know, pivoted uh, to the north and west. You haven't really heard the term bomb cyclone with this, even though it was kind of thrown around. It didn't really deepen that much, but you had a ton of moisture, a ton of cold air on the backside. And what's really interesting, Mike, is that you can actually see, NPEG, you can actually see there's snow over northern Louisiana, southern Arkansas, that northwest part of Mississippi, um, and Alabama as well. So that, the white streak that you see across Tennessee there is the snow the other two streaks that are coming out of Missouri and Illinois um, is the snow for us. Uh, wow. But what's really remarkable is that the fact that the cold air pushed all the way down through the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and in addition to that, there's not much white out in California or Arizona or New Mexico. There's very little snow and has been very little snow uh, since Christmas in that part of the desert Southwest. Mm. Now, not- what's a bomb cyclone again? So Bob Cyclone is any time that you um, intensify the center of low pressure more than 24 millibars in 24 hours. So it's basically one millibar for every hour. The reason why we call it a bomb is that it develops explosively. Um, I know weathermen come up with these weird terms. Uh, so when we, when we say explosive cyclogenesis, sometimes we say it bombs out. Um, and after a while, that term got thrown around as much as the polar vortex did. Yeah. Uh, but this cold weather was actually part of a piece of the polar vortex uh, that got kind of that kind of split off from the main polar vortex and shifted southward. Uh, in fact, the temperatures at eighteen thousand feet over International Falls was minus forty eight degrees centigrade. That is really, really cold. Whenever you get below minus thirty, yeah, whenever you get below minus thirty, that's cold. But you get to yeah. minus forty eight degrees centigrade, holy smoke. If this would have been if this would have been in January, we would be talking about not lows of eleven above, which we got to, or eight below, which is what Superior Wisconsin got to. You'd be talking probably twenty to thirty degrees below zero. And that was that was sufficient snow cover. So uh, the only good thing about this weather pattern is that it says the word March and not January. This would be much, much colder. Yeah, and I, here's, a, right. here, here's a, the close-up of uh, our area and the snow that we got. Yeah, and I, and I think what's cool is a couple of really neat things about this. Um, a, it snowed further to the south of us. Um, O'Hare got an inch. Um, Midway got about an inch and a half. Uh, Joliet got about two inches. Uh, but places to the south, like Kankakee, uh, down around Iroquois County, Bloomington got three to five inches of snow. That area, again, 
all winter, or I should say the last two months, um, has had a fairly um, persistent snow, whereas Rockford, again, only got about a half inch. And what's really interesting, if you go across the state line into Wisconsin, uh, the first county there, um, which is Kenosha County, and then you have Racine County, and then you go west into Walworth County. And if you're really good with your eyes, you can actually make out Lake Geneva. Um, Lake Geneva is on the southern edge of Walworth County. Um, and that long kind of um, north northeast to southwest green line, um, that's uh, Interstate 43 that connects Interstate 90 um, to uh, Interstate 94. And then you go further to the north and west along I-90 and you get up in the Dane County, you can actually see the four lakes in and around the um, uh, Madison area. So it's really neat this time of the year when you have really high sun angle and you get you capture the satellite right in the middle of the day uh, and you can get some really, really cool uh, visuals. And I also kind of, you know, I, I made the background more of a more of a green, uh, more of a more of a natural green. Uh, and I think what's more impressive is you can see the rivers which have largely melted, except for maybe the Mississippi up by um, northwest Illinois. But you can also see the, the effect of the city. So the urban heat island has a huge impact on the ability for the snow to be seen um, or for it to accumulate. And obviously you have lake effect clouds um, over on the other side of the lake. So, again, visible satellite this time of the year um, is, is a, a, a wealth of information in many ways, and I think, Mike and Peg, in a couple of weeks, we'll be able to see some of the vegetation growing mm-hmm. um, across areas of the Deep South as well. Uh, and our friend Deb, who lives in Indiana, says she got four inches of snow. Looks like uh, we had a significant uh, lake effect uh, on the Michigan side in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know, speaking of um, speaking of, of, of vegetation and trees, uh, prior to the heavy rain moving into Florida the last couple of days, there was a massive wildfire in the Florida Panhandle, almost 28,000 acres uh, wide, or I should say aerial coverage. Um, that was all the uh, tree damage from Hurricane Michael um, a few years back, 20, I want to say 2018. Um, when Hurricane Michael came through that area, it literally devastated anything between about the Florida Panhandle and the Georgia state line which is largely unpopulated. It's amazing. As that as bad as that hurricane was, it did not hit um, any large metropolitan areas outside of the Panama City and Apalachicola Bay area. But it knocked down so many pine trees. Pine trees don't grow back real quickly like normal trees do where you can break off a branch and it can start growing again. And it was amazing. It, it was so dry in that area that the, the debris that was on the ground the dead pine trees and all the leaves and the needles, um, I said not leaves, but the needles, um, actually caught on fire. And it was it was very well observed by the visible satellite uh, a couple of days before the rain hit. Now the rain has hit, so the fire is out and the ground is obviously moistened up again. But it, it shows you what you can see um, after um, an event like that came through because it's not like anybody's going to go through there and rape the forest, right? Like Mr. President Trump told us to do. Um, but it does show you that forest management, um, forest management is important. It, it, it really is. And, and even, even with the, um, you know, the, the statement that he made, there was actually some validity to it. It's not just the, 
not a, not a dumb statement. It was just the way it was presented. Yeah, well, if you're going to have that kind of debris there, yeah, it's and it then it dries out and it's it's a setup for those kinds of fires. Uh, something else that you sent is uh, Rockford stats. Uh, they haven't uh, had a lot of snow. Yeah, and I think what's amazing about it is they haven't had a lot of deep snow as well. Um, so they've been missing just about every snow event that we've had so far this year. Um, They've had zero days with more than six inches of snow on the ground. Um, and this is the same area that has been in the dry area of the drought since last year. So it's, it's amazing how the one area that needed the precipitation and the snow the most um, simply has not gotten it. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. I knew that was going to happen. Next time, just give me a heads up if you can, and I can mute you, but uh, all right. It's all right. Live TV, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah. You know what? That said, I'm surprised more people don't sneeze on live TV when when we're watching interview shows and news reports and that sort of thing. Yeah. they usually get choked up. You see them. You see them uh, where they they can't speak because they get something caught in their throat. But rarely do you see anybody sneeze. Uh, uh, last week I had I had a moment here where I was uh, fighting off a sneeze, uh, and I think it was while we were talking here. Uh, and uh, it's just a. I bet there. I bet there's a compilation somewhere on YouTube of uh, people newscasters sneezing. Uh, I'm going to have to look it up after the show. <laughs> I'm sure you'll probably find it. Um, but it, it's amazing that the same area that did not get snow uh, of any abundance this year um, is the one place uh, that has needed it. So when you look at, you know, you say, "Oh wow, Rockford snowfall total um, 17.6 inches." O'Hare, I think, will end up at about 30. Um, I'm going to end up probably with about 36. Um, and Midway is going to end up with about 40. So snow is always one of those things that is, is not a good, um, is not a good uh, benchmark for determining how, um, how severe your winter was. Because there's a lot of times you can get a lot of moisture in the atmosphere, but just not convert it into snow. And um, we had a lot of drier snow events too, didn't we? Where it was a, it yeah. wasn't a heavy snow; it was a dry snow that evaporated. Yeah, th- th- that's a good point, Peg. Because the the snow that we did get, you know, that inflates the numbers as well. Um, I think the one time that Midway got eleven inches, uh, the water content was pretty low. Um, so you really got to look at water content. But nonetheless, when you look at the water content, again, um, it has been uh, a dry a dry winter season in the areas that we needed it. Um, again, I, I think the pattern probably will still enable us to get some decent amount of precipitation between now um, and the beginning of the growing season, which really kind of begins at about, what, four to five weeks. Um, but I think, Mike and Peg, it's safe to say that we're done with any accumulating snow of any great extent. And this is without a doubt the, the last of any Arctic air uh, for this winter and the pattern bears that out. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, give me two seconds here. Cause I just decided whether we, while we were talking to pop up the, uh, drought map, here we go. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, what it is right now, uh, in the Midwest. 
So, um, and yeah, I don't, you must've got that. I don't think I sent that to you, but uh, no, I just, I just found it just now. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, the, the Lake McHenry, Walworth, Kenosha, that has not really budged. No, no, it hasn't Peg. And, and the severe drought, um, I, I think we're probably not too far away from hitting extreme drought. Um, and again, even if you get any sort of, you know, moisture this time of the year, um, it's, well, I shouldn't say moisture, um, snowfall, um, it's probably going to melt very, very quickly or sublimate in a dry air mass like this. So as long as the ground right now um, is sufficiently uh, warm, which I think it is once you get below the first inch, I mean, it got pretty cold the last couple of days. Uh, it's going to warm very, very quickly between now and Wednesday. We just need some good soaking rains. Um, and I think that is definitely in the cards over the next two weeks. It, look, it definitely looks like we get into a, a wet pattern between now and the end of March. And and I noticed looking at this drought monitor that the it, look at the uh, the boundary of it. It's basically the path of those several of the storms that we had. Oh, yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah. so north of that, they didn't get that moisture, and south of it, they got a lot of that moisture. Yeah, and and I think there were three different events that went through uh, southern Illinois, southeast Missouri, um, parts of the basically the Ohio Valley down into the mid Tennessee Valley. Uh, they're basically in flood watch for the upcoming spring season. Now, here's the problem: is down there, that's usually where you get most of your drainage from the Mississippi the Wabash and the Ohio River. So the fact that they're already way ahead of schedule from a standpoint of subsoil moisture does not bode well for the upcoming um, spring season. But again, where we do most of the planting, obviously in Ohio, uh, generally between I-70 and I-80 is where we need it. Um, We don't need it in central Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, but we definitely need it across Iowa parts of Northwest Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota right now is doing relatively okay. <laughs> Excuse me. So it's a small area, but again, it's the same area as we, as we saw um, coming out of last summer um, into the fall season. All right. And uh, I'm uh, popping up. I've got uh, the national. My figure, mm-hmm. let's, let's take a look at that as well since we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. drought. So here's the national. Yeah, this is this has not changed much from a standpoint of, of where the area of dryness is. Uh, if anything, it's gotten worse. Um, and I know Skilling reposted this on his uh, Facebook page and basically just retreated or retweeted rather what the Climate Prediction Center says is the last time this much of the country um, was in extreme drought was during the. Um, uh, spring of March uh, 2012. And remember, that was the year that we had, I think, six consecutive days in mid-March of 80-degree weather. Yep. Uh, yep. This is, this is remarkable because um, this area that's dry is not going to get much in the way of precipitation in the spring. Uh, the pattern that, that we're in right now does not bode well for strong storms coming in from the Pacific Ocean or deep cyclones trying to get that moisture back over areas of parts of um, Texas and also into Oklahoma. So this also looks reminds me a lot of the spring of 2005 
when we were really dry in that area of Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle, and you had one of the earliest 100-degree days ever. You had phenomenal amount of, of drought, uh, of dryness. And usually when you get really dry in that part of the United States, um, even if you have a wet spring, you can get pretty hot very, very quickly. So I would not be surprised, just trying to put the pieces together here, of us still having somewhat of a wet spring, and then which could end up leading to a really, really warm uh, beginning of summer. Uh, and that would promote, obviously, some high heat and humidity as well. So we'll see how that works. But the bottom line is, when you get vast amounts of dryness to that degree over that large of an area, um, that tends to kind of um, enhance whatever dryness that you have. It's hard, it's hard, to, it's hard to wet that down um, over the next two months. And if you remember, last year we were talking about how dry it was in, in parts of California Oregon and Washington in early May or in early March. And we said if we didn't get the rains by early May, uh, that was it. So they need, like, literally their next two months is going to be super critical or they're looking at another repeat of what happened in that area, um, you know, last summer. And that's what you see here. This is the seven-day rainfall total. Um, and, again, you look at where it is. Most of it is to the south of us, uh, not across the places where we need it. Again, that could change seasonally as the entire jet stream pattern kind of, you know, nudges northward a little bit. And equinox. And equinox, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it's, and it's really interesting because by the time you get into that, it's really tough to generate any cold or snow of any consequences. So I think it's safe to say that this is the end of our Arctic cold of any great, you know, degree of coldness. Are we done, done, done with the snow from a standpoint of accumulating? Um, I think it's 99% chance that we're done. But, you know, we've had snow all the way into the middle of April. It's not out of the question. Uh, but, again, shovelable snow, I think we're finished with that. If we had a question online. Are we past the last hard frost? But I would no. think, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Oh, you got a long way to go for that. Um, if it was April 13th, I'd be like, yeah, maybe, but it's only March 13th. That's a yeah. long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Long way to go. So you okay. can plant your spinach and cilantro and the other things Lisa Hilgenberg said we could, but too early for tomatoes for sure. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. don't even, um, don't even talk about tomatoes. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Don't move the house plants yeah. out yet. Nope. Yeah. But this, but the snowdrops are back. I, I saw them this morning. Yeah. Okay. They, Good. They, and that's, they, that's came out, they came out a couple of days ago. Yep. Yeah, and that's what they are. We we looked at the uh, you texted us and the I, we ID'd them as snowdrops, not right. not crocuses. Uh, so yeah, so cool. And my yeah, my my stuff is still just coming up. We'll see what happens. My, I've got daffodils up about well that far. So. Yeah, I've seen buds on my daffodils. Uh, so oh, yeah. well, your daff your daffodils, your front yard bud pretty right. early. Yeah, they do because I've got I've got the uh, southern exposure. It's it's f interesting with the snow. Even the one inch we had in the middle of the week, or, or several Hasn't days. Hasn't gone away yet. Uh, well, on the other side, on the side of the right. on the street, on the su south side of the street where they have the northern mm -hmm. exposure, there it was on the sidewalk. On our side, it it did not uh, last on the sidewalk at all. It didn't uh, form a coating at all. So yep. it's interesting just on one side of the yeah, street or line, the other. I'm just looking up the block here. There's lines across everybody's yard. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, by the way, real quick, I was looking at the weather. I was looking at the weather down at uh, the golf tournament, and at 8 a.m. this morning, temperature was 35. The dew point was 19. The wind was out of the north at 10, gusting to 22, and the wind chill was 26. (laughs) I, I I I think they actually delayed the first three hours because normally they tee off at 7.30. I think they delayed it to 10. Yeah. That, that's just too cold to play golf. That's that, just too cold. That tournament, yeah. golf clapping to keep warm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you got to be careful. If you hit the ball wrong at that temperature, your finger will just fall off. It will just, you know. You won't, it, it, certainly your hand will go numb for about an hour. Uh, yeah. Boy, been there, done that. All right, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, I'm looking forward to the warmth. We'll, we'll see what happens this yeah. week. All right, Rick, have okay. a great week. All right, see you guys. All right. Thanks, Rick. Let's do it. Let's get out of here. Uh, uh, thank you to uh, all of our wonderful guests today. Petra Page Mann from Fruition Seeds. She's a trip. She really is a trip. Um, Alyssa, She's out skiing by now. <laughs> yeah, she probably is. Alyssa Rose Martin uh, from the USA National Phenology Network. Uh, Jean Linsner from the 606. Uh, thanks to Rick DeMaio, meteorologist extraordinaire, to Kathleen, who's been helping me on a bunch of stuff here, to Lagata, the cat, and Basil, the dog. So, And everybody watching us. Yes, thank you for that. Until next time, go green or go home. It's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. 